After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do, do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Get rid of him. Thanks, Carl. Well, it's great to be uh, here with you this morning. If you're visiting here this morning, uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to pray now, and then uh, we'll think about that passage that we read. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word uh, and that we can read those words uh, and we can hear them and receive them as your words spoken to us. Lord, help us to hear your words this morning and to believe them and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, on uh, the 2nd of September 2008, a combined Afghan, US and Australian patrol was attacked by an enemy ambush, uh, outnumbered and under attack from machine gun fire and rocket-propelled grenades. The patrol suffered numerous casualties uh, and were held down for more than two hours. According to the official citation for his Victoria Cross... In the early stages of the ambush, Trooper Donaldson deliberately exposed himself to enemy fire in order to draw attention to himself and thus away from wounded soldiers. This selfless act alone bought enough time for those wounded to be moved to relative safety. He continues, Of his own volition and displaying complete disregard for his own safety, Trooper Donaldson moved alone on foot across approximately 80 metres of exposed ground to recover the wounded interpreter. His movement, once identified by the enemy, drew intense and accurate machine gun fire from entrenched positions. Upon reaching the wounded coalition force interpreter, Trooper Donaldson picked him up and carried him back to the relative safety of the vehicles, then provided immediate first aid before returning to the fight. Trooper Donaldson's acts of exceptional gallantry in the face of accurate and sustained enemy fire ultimately saved the life of a coalition force interpreter and ensured the safety of the other members of the combined Afghan, US and Australian force. Trooper Donaldson's actions on this day displayed exceptional courage in the circumstances of great peril. His actions are of the highest accord and, in keeping with the, and are in keeping with the finest traditions of Special Operations Command, the Australian Army and the Australian Defence Force. We rightly uh, admire and honour the courage of uh, people like Trooper Donaldson who uh, put their lives on the line, risked their lives to save the lives of others, who risked their lives to do their duty. We honour them. We honour them with medals. We honour them with parades. We honour them with, uh, with statues. 
uh, and names on rolls of uh, on honor rolls. We write books about them. We make films uh, about them. And although it's not nearly as dramatic uh, here in uh, as what Trevor Donaldson did here in Acts uh, chapter twenty one, uh, Paul risks his life. He shows complete disregard for his own safety. He sets himself on a course of beatings, of imprisonment, of shipwreck, a course that would ultimately end uh, with his death, most likely at the hands of Nero. And he does it in order to save lives. He does it in order to save lives by preaching the gospel. He does it in order to complete the task that he had been given by God to testify to Jesus Christ. And as we're working through the book of Acts this morning, we're thinking about the place, as David's already suggested, about the place of courage and boldness in the Christian life and in the ministry which God has entrusted to each one of his people. Well, we pick things up uh, in this chapter with Paul. He's left Ephesus. He's heading to Jerusalem. uh, And on his way there, two very similar things happen. When he stops at Tyre, we're told in verse 4 that he sought out the other Christians who'd lived there. And it says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So uh, they have some sense of, of danger coming. And so they say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Then he goes on to Caesarea and something similar happens again. In Caesarea, he stays with Philip, the deacon and the evangelist. And while he's there, this prophet named Agabus comes from Judea. Uh, And when he meets Paul, he dramatises an insight that the Holy Spirit has given him into Paul's future. He takes uh, Paul's belt, uh, it's probably kind of a cloth girdle or something like that. He uses it to bind his own hands and feet together and says in verse 11, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. At that point, all the people who are there begin pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. See what's going to happen. Don't go up there. And in response to that pleading and begging of the people, Paul says, obviously, no, I'll stay here and and we'll be safe together. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says to them, you're breaking my heart. Please don't do this to me. Please don't ask me to stay. It's too hard for me if you do that. I know what I've got to do. I've got to go on to Jerusalem, don't you see? The Holy Spirit's compelling me to go there. Please don't ask me to stay. It's too hard for me to say no to you and to say yes to God. Paul's willing to go to Jerusalem as a prisoner and he's willing to die there if that's what God has in store for him because there's bigger things at stake than his life. Back in chapter 20, he might have been here last week, we saw that Paul says he doesn't consider his life worth anything to him except that he might finish the task that God has given to him of testifying to Jesus. The spirit, he says there, is compelling him to go to Jerusalem and so... He has no choice but to go. 
Well, I think the most striking thing about this passage, actually, is that both Paul and these Christians have insights from the Spirit about the future. They both have uh, special insight from the Spirit, clear insight from the Spirit about what the future holds. They have access to the same information about the difficulties that Paul will face in Jerusalem. But they arrive at radically different conclusions. They all know what's going to happen. But for Paul's friends, that's a reason not to go. While for Paul, it's an opportunity to brace himself for the cost of his ministry and the cost of following Jesus. You see, I think we often fool ourselves into thinking that if we knew what the future held, we'd be so much better equipped to face it. We could make better decisions. No, that's going to be difficult. I won't go there. That will be much more successful. I'll go there instead. But actually, knowledge without wisdom, it turns out, can be positively misleading. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. It's too dangerous. Without wisdom, we can easily end up trying to put people off their course for what appears like good reasons, when actually they may not be good reasons at all. These Christians viewed the future through the lens of their own safety and the hope for a quiet life. And as a result, their glimpse of the future led them to try and stop Paul in his mission. But Paul viewed the future through the lens of the ministry that God had given to him and which the Holy Spirit was compelling within him. More than that, he viewed viewed the future through the lens of Of the cross. He viewed his life and ministry through the lens of what Jesus Christ had done for him in his place. This episode with Paul is almost a shadow, actually, of Christ's own experiences. The the resonances with what Jesus went through are extraordinary. So there's the journey to Jerusalem. They're both on a journey to Jerusalem. They both anticipate that their journey to Jerusalem will end in death, one way or another. Uh, And they both have people along the way trying to dissuade them from going. The connections are not an accident. Paul's walking the path that Jesus has gone before him. And Jesus had said that's exactly what would happen. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me will find it. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, to the cross, to death, to suffering, in order to complete the task that the Father had given him. And Paul does the same thing. God had given him a task and Paul sets his face to do it. Which is not to say that what what Paul accomplished in his life and ministry comes within a bull's roar of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not at all. Jesus' death brought rescue from judgment, uh, the rescue from judgment that we deserve. It brought freedom from eternal death. It brought the hope of the resurrection. Paul's uh, life and ministry isn't bringing that hope in the same way, but it is announcing that fact. Because Paul is following in the footsteps of his saviour Jesus, he views his life and ministry in completely different terms to these Christians 
who are trying to put him off his mission. His life is nothing to him, except he might finish the task that God has given to him of testifying to Jesus. Of course, for most of us, uh, the threat is not prison uh, or death, but just hardship, just difficulty. For most of us, the cost of ministry, the ministry with which God, the varied ministries with which God has entrusted us, the cost of those ministries will just be hardship. And often it all looks much too hard, doesn't it? And it is hard. Good things usually are difficult. But if we, if we view that through the lens of our own self-preservation, we'll always be dissuading ourselves and others from going ahead with it. Sometimes, of course, we don't even need the crowd of other Christians around us that Paul had, trying to dissuade us from doing what God wants us to do. Sometimes our own internal monologue is more than enough to put us off the task that God is calling us to. We can find all the reasons that we need without even asking anyone else. And so every day is a battle, not with others, but with our own minds. It's a battle to view reality through the lens of what Jesus has done. It's a battle to view things through the lens of taking up our cross and following Jesus. We say to ourselves, I can't do today. I I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't do that. Even though God has given me the gifts, I still can't do it. And we have to say to ourselves, no, I can do it through him who strengthens me. Uh, I read a prayer this week uh, from uh, a book called The Valley of Vision, based on prayers from the Puritans. Uh, And the prayer said this, Teach me that I must act by a supernatural power, whereby I can attempt things above my strength, acting for Christ in all, and have his superior power to help me. Let me learn of Paul, whose presence was mean, his weakness great, his utterance contemptible. Yet thou didst account him faithful and blessed. Lord, let me lean on thee as he did, and find my ministry thine. We need to, in the face of our own doubts, remind ourselves of the power of God who enables us to do the ministry which he calls us to do. But we not only dissuade ourselves, perhaps the worst thing that we do is sometimes to dissuade others from doing the ministry that God has called them to do as well. That's what the Christians were doing to Paul. Don't do it, Paul, it's too hard. And we say to others, don't do it, the cost is too high. It's not that we're wrong about what it's going to cost. It's not that we've misread the future. Rather, it's that we're misreading the nature of the Christian life and the ministry which God has entrusted to each of us, uh, albeit in different ways. You see, unless we view life and the future through the lens of the cross and Christ, then it's hard to see that we'll ever do anything at all. Why would you bother? The cost is too high. The difficulties are too hard, they're too immense. The risk is beyond us. I watched a video this week 
uh, from Open Doors. I don't know if you get the emails that come out from Open Doors. You might have seen it if you, if you do. There were two ladies, Miriam and Marzier, who were arrested and condemned to death uh, in Iran after having distributed 20,000 Bibles. They were uh, later set free, I think. But, but why, would you, why would you take that risk? Unless you viewed life and ministry through the lens of the cross and through the lens of Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to complete the task for which the Father had called him. As the guy in the video said, we don't get a life of safety, we get a great commission. And there's a light years of difference between the two. I keep thinking about our upcoming congregation plant. If you didn't view life through the lens of the cross, you'd never do it. It's too hard, it's too time consuming, it's too difficult. If you didn't view life through the lens of the cross, you'd just sit by and watch people go to hell. You'd just put up a sign at the door that said, too full, please find somewhere else. Only through the lens of the cross and the shape of Jesus' ministry does any of it make sense at all. What the Christians pleading with Paul failed to see was the Christ-like shape of Paul's ministry and that meant they misread not the future but what to do with it. So in the end, Paul heads on to Jerusalem, not put off by his Christian brothers and sisters and there he meets with the leaders of the church there, with Jesus' brother James and the other elders and Paul reports them the amazing things that God has been doing through his missionary work. But the leaders in Jerusalem, it turns out, are a little worried about Paul's ministry and how it will be received in Jerusalem. They say in verse 20, uh, when they heard this, it says, sorry, uh, when they heard this, they praised God and they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. The people that James is worried about here is not first of all those who aren't Christians, the people from outside the church, uh, but the people he's worried about are those who are in the church. He's worried about the Christian Jews who might misinterpret Paul's ministry and the concern is that that will then lead to division. The particular issue that they're concerned about is the place of the Old Testament law in the lives of the Jewish people who had become Christians. What were they to do uh, with their ancient customs? Some people had been saying that Paul was teaching people to turn away from the law and instructing them not to follow uh, any of those Old Testament law or those Old Testament customs. But his message actually wasn't so simple. Neither Paul nor any of the other apostles had abandoned the law in the sense that they thought it had been some kind of mistake uh, in God's plan. Rather, they were trying to show, the apostles and Paul were trying to show, that uh, people that the very thing which the law pointed to was Jesus Christ. So they weren't throwing the law out but saying, actually, it was pointing to something bigger than itself. And that thing is Jesus. The important thing was knowing and trusting Jesus not knowing and trusting the law. And so long as people knew and trusted Jesus, Paul didn't really care if they still wanted to carry on some of their ancient customs. 
Uh, Elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, in 1 Corinthians 9.20, he says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having uh, the law. To the weak I became like the weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul's, Paul's saying there he's willing to engage in, in uh, different practices, uh, in, in, even in practices of the Old Testament law as a matter of custom, so long as people realise that what really matters is knowing and loving Jesus. So in order that no one will think that Paul is anti the law, the elders and James in Jerusalem suggest to Paul that he take part in this purification rite. There's four men who have planned to do that uh, and James and the elders suggest that Paul pay some of the money that they need to do as part of that and, and, and to be involved in it in some way. Uh, James wants Paul to participate like that so that people can see that he's not anti the Old Testament, that he's not kind of throwing that away. Because Paul isn't anti the Old Testament, he knows that it finds its fulfilment in the person and work of Jesus. You see, it's not that the Jerusalem leaders are trying to undermine the gospel. Actually, what they're trying to do is to prevent an unnecessary division in the church. And so Paul is only too happy to be part of that. As John Stott points out, this is not a compromise. Uh, as in a compromise of moral and theological principles. Rather, it's a concession in the area of practice. It's not a compromise, it's a concession. Suffering uh, and persecution is not the only cost in the Christian life and Christian ministry. Another significant cost is forbearance and patience. Life in the church is full of, not compromises, but concessions. Concessions to other ways of doing things. Concessions to things which don't matter. Concessions over what kind of music we sing. One person wants to sing one kind of music, another person some, some, some other kind of music, and someone else something else altogether. In the end, virtually everybody has to concede. We have to make concessions over what time we meet, whether it's on Sunday or in growth groups or in youth group or some other kind of event that the church holds. Someone at the end of the day has to decide on when to meet and sometimes are more convenient for some than for others. We make concessions over where we meet. Where we meet is closer for some people than it is for others. Some people have to drive further. Concessions in the life of the church are important, necessary in order to maintain the unity of the church. And although it's not explicit here, it's likely that Paul's compromise was not only intended to stop uh, division in the church, but also was intended to stop the witness of the church to the non-Christian Jews from being undermined. That's clear in other places in Acts and in that quote from 1 Corinthians 9. And as we'll see in a minute, the misinformation about Paul's view of the law meant that some of the Jews living in Jerusalem were hostile to Paul and unwilling to listen to what he had to say. And so here he goes out of his way to make sure that they can try and get a hearing. It doesn't work, but he tries nonetheless. Sometimes we not only have to make concessions 
for those within the church, but we actually need to make concessions for those outside the church so that they hear the gospel. Uh, To give one very small example, Uh, on our website there's a page uh, that helps people who aren't familiar with church to know what to expect. What are they to expect when they come uh, on Sunday mornings? And it says something like, we start at 10 and we finish at 11, but you're welcome to turn up whenever you, whenever you can. And if you don't feel comfortable, you're welcome to leave whenever you can as well. Now, some people might think that's rude, to not turn up on time or to leave halfway through. Some people might think that dishonours God. But actually, it's a very small concession, isn't it? To make people feel comfortable and to make people feel willing and able to come and to see and perhaps to hear the gospel. Paul and the elders of the church in Jerusalem are not compromising the truth. They're not saying things don't matter when they really do. They're making concessions on things that are neither here nor there in order to maintain the unity of the church and to promote the gospel. So Paul's warned about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. When he arrives, it's, uh, he goes out of his way to prevent division in the church and to gain a hearing. Uh, but while those, those efforts might satisfy the Jewish Christians, it doesn't do much good in terms of the unbelieving Jews. In that last section from verse 27 onwards, we uh, find out that when his purification rite had finished, he was seen going up to the temple Uh, and a group of people saw him and stirred up this crowd to seize him, and they accused him in verse 28 of saying, uh, saying, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Which wasn't even true, uh, by the way. He wasn't teaching against the law. We've seen that. He was teaching about how the law was fulfilled in Jesus and he hadn't brought Greeks into the temple. He'd just been walking around the town with them and they'd assumed that, uh, that he'd gone one step further than that. But he hadn't. The disturbance, the outrage is so immense that the city is in uh, this tumult. Uh, the people come running from everywhere. They even try to kill Paul and mercifully the commander of the Roman troops steps in. He hears about it. He breaks it up. Uh, But in doing that, he arrests Paul and binds him in chains and takes him into the barracks for questioning. In fact, we're told that the violence was so immense that the soldiers had to carry Paul through the crowd. That's how, how difficult it was. But the key thing, I think, is that at the end of this passage, we find Paul in precisely the circumstances that Agabus said that he would be in. The Holy Spirit said through Agabus, that Paul would be bound, and he was. The Spirit said that Paul would be handed over to the Romans, and he was. Everything that God had said would happen, had happened. That might seem like a hollow victory. (laughs) Wow, isn't that great? Everything that God said had happened, had happened, and yet there is Paul in prison. It's not much of a comfort. But actually, the certainty of God's word and God's plan is a great source of reassurance and comfort in the midst of troubled and uncertain times. 
it would have been natural for Paul to look at the complete disarray of what had happened with his capture and arrest, the, the riot in the city. It would be easy for him to look at all that and to go, wow, God is totally out of control here. But that's not true. Everything was going precisely according to God's plan. Paul could think back to the witness of the Holy Spirit in his own heart. Trouble and hardship await wherever you go. He could think back to the witness of the Christians in Tyre and in Caesarea. (laughs) Don't go, Paul. It's going to be dangerous. He could think back to those things and he could see that his arrest and imprisonment were not arbitrary, but were actually part of the great plan and purpose of God. That might seem to us like cold comfort, but it ought to be a tremendous encouragement. When we see our lives following the shape of Jesus' life, we shouldn't think, wow, God's totally lost control. We should think, isn't that wonderful? That exactly what God had said would happen is what's happening. God had said, whatever happens to Jesus, that's what happens to his followers as well. No servant's greater than his master. When we see our lives following the shape of Jesus' life, we should be encouraged that it's part of the great plan and purpose of God. Listen to these words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not panic, God's out of control. But rejoice and be glad. Or listen to these words of the Apostle Peter. Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. God said it would happen. How do you respond? But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And we try to tell people about Jesus and they reject it. We shouldn't think that God has lost control. Or that our life and ministry is worthless. Or that we are worthless. But we should see it as sharing in the sufferings of Christ and as part of the plan and purpose of God. When the ministries that God has entrusted to us are difficult and trying, we shouldn't despair, but remember that Jesus' ministry to us cost him his life. And that was part of the plan and purpose of God as well. And thinking about our own circumstances as a church, if planting a second congregation should demand of all of us more than we ever expected to give, if it should turn out to be different than we expected, if it should fail, we shouldn't think that God has lost control or that our sufferings are arbitrary. We should see them through the lens of the cross as part of the plan and purpose of God. Because Paul viewed his life and ministry through that lens, he could embrace what others around him could not. He could embrace that his life was worth nothing to him except he finished the the task that God had given to him of testifying to the good news about Jesus. 
Uh, And through Paul's example, God challenges us to do the same. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us without insight uh, into our future or the path that we must walk, but that you have shown us by your most holy word that we need to follow Jesus and to follow in the way that he has gone. Lord, thank you that you have given us not only words about that future, but the model of Christ Jesus himself and the model of others too. In the Bible, like Paul and the Apostle Peter, in life, like in the model of Jim Elliot and his wife. People who have consider their life worth nothing to them except they might finish the task that you have given to them of testifying to the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we know that as Christians, that those of us who belong to Jesus and trust him, that to each one of us you have entrusted us ministry, service of the gospel, service of Christ, that we serve Christ in all different ways. And yet, Lord, each of us know that in all those different ways, one thing unites them all, that they will be difficult and costly, that serving Jesus will cost us our lives, but not our futures. Lord, thank you that our future is secure in Jesus Christ, secure in eternity, secure forever. Lord, help us to trust that uh, in all that we do. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.